Of course, I've got the switch wrong. If you have a bulletin, look at the front, at the top of the bulletin. It says that I'm supposed to be Dave Werns. And anybody that knows Dave Werns, you know that I am not Dave. So, let's turn our attention to Esther chapter 10. And as you're turning there, let me tell you, Esther's one of those little books, just 10 chapters. If you can find Psalms in the Old Testament about the middle of your book... Back before that is Job, and Esther is right before uh, Job. As you do, I want you to know that I got that call. Uh, It's the first of its kind for me. In fact, I don't know if we've ever, I don't know if Pastor Brad ever got a call like this last moment, but uh, less than 36 hours ago, I got that call that most pastors, especially as they are trying, as the church is trying to finish up a series of messages, in fact, the last um, message of the series, getting a call that says, um, Dave sick, all right? And so I'm concerned about Dave, but not as much as I'm concerned about myself in that moment, (laughs) all right? Let's just be honest, all right? Contrary to what you might believe these messages are not thrown together in a few hours. Uh, We take seriously the study of God's Word, crafting what we believe God would have His people to hear. And so I got that call. And so if you take your bulletin, you flip it over on the back, you're going to see what my brain felt like yesterday morning. (laughs) All right? I'm not going to preach Dave's message. Peter and I are both baseball fans And I felt like I was called to pinch hit, and I picked up Dave's bat, and I looked at it, and I thought, I cannot swing this bat. There is no way. But by the grace of God, we're here together. And if you don't know me, my name is Brian Fannin. Wherever you're joining us today, we are glad you're here. I serve as the Florence Campus Pastor of Grace Fellowship. And as much as I was concerned yesterday... This morning, I'm actually anticipating sharing with you what I believe God has from His Word. Esther chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king had advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and he was popular among the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And with that, we come to the end of this book. The summer series is over. That beautiful and elaborate uh, bumper that you see preceding the message each Sunday, it's going to get tucked away. We're going to turn our attention to other places in Scripture. But as we bring this teaching to a close, I want us to be reminded of the overarching theme that we've tried to instill in you That God is silently sovereign in this book. 
God is active and he's limiting and he's ordering and he's controlling things. It is a part of the fabric of Grace Fellowship Church. Yet, as we look at this book, we see, and may you be reminded that God is not mentioned. He is not recognized. We do not see him worshiped, but his providential hand is there. God is only silent in that we do not see his name on the pages of the text. But we do see that he is orchestrating within his people in the midst of trial and suffering that leads to parties and to a call for them to remember this moment. So as you and I gather today and as we look at the text, we cycle back to something important. And it has to do with you. What is God about to do in your life? It may very well be something more than what you want, more than you wish for. Yet may you be reminded that God is ultimately in control. And as your story is written, as my story is written, we won't always see God's hand. Nor do we know what kind of joy he is going to bring nor do we always anticipate the suffering that will also come. What is it then that as God's people that we are to be about as we seek to trust God, as we seek with the day-to-day events of our lives, what is it that we are to be about doing? First thing I want you to see, I want you to get this firmly in view Your life will come in cycles, guaranteed. Life comes in cycles, guaranteed. Yes, that means that you can anticipate good. Some of which you won't always recognize in the moment as being good because it will be disguised as a trial. There's going to be plenty of humdrum days. And lots of challenges that you truly are going to face in a broken, sinful world. So you've heard me reference this before. You are typically one of three states. You are either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you can anticipate you're about to head into one. And as we look at a text like this, just three verses, small detail might be jumped over in a passage like Esther chapter 10. Because there's been lots of drama in the first nine chapters. But now comes an element that on the surface might seem to be small, but it actually is not. Look at Esther chapter 10 verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Taxes. Now you might think like, you're telling me Brian in the last... 36 hours, you decided to do a message on taxes? No. But I do want you to see something here. It's here. And as Dave, even in his notes, as I looked at them, there was something insightful. We do not cherry pick scripture. We look at what's there. We expose what's there. And what is there is this reference to tax. Taxes are one of life's guarantees, and they come back. It used to be said that there are literally two things in life that are guaranteed. What? Death 
and taxes, right? I did a little Google search yesterday. They're now listing a third, death, taxes, and job insecurity. Some of you know what that's like. You know what it's like to wake up tomorrow and not quite sure if by the end of the week you'll still have a job. Look at Esther 2. We started in Esther 10, but in chapter 2, there is another mention of taxes. In verse 17 of Esther chapter 2, that says, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the province and gave royal gifts with royal generosity. Now, early in the book, as Esther becomes queen, taxes are suspended. All the more reason to celebrate. But when we get to chapter 10, after all that has occurred, these suspension of taxes end. But frankly, as much as we don't like taxes, there is the reality as the government uses them for things that we might not have otherwise. Please, please understand, I'm not trying to open a philosophical debate about taxes. But this is what's in the text. It was suspended. Now it comes back. And as it comes back, may we be reminded of cycles And it's the norm. There are cycles to our existence. Celebrations do come to an end. The young grow old. Pandemics eventually become endemic. And paradise, it does get paved over. It's humbling to know that most of us really won't be remembered much 100 years from now. Our names will not be mentioned But there's some lessons to be learned from a life like Esther and Mordecai's. Do you remember her roots? Can you recall that she was an orphan and she was adopted by Mordecai? She is the ultimate rags to riches story. And she knew the pain of watching her adopted dad face death threats from the second most powerful person in the kingdom. And with that, her people as well face the threat of ethnic cleansing. She was thrust into a major trial. She would not choose to place herself there. She would likely not have, she would have probably preferred to just kind of fly under the radar. After all, she was the queen. But she gets word from her dad as he says, you will not escape. Do not think the king's palace, even there, is a safe place for any Jew more than any other place. That's Esther chapter 4, verse 13. But then we turn to verse 14 right after that. That verse that some of you know because it is at central, the central point of the, the whole teaching. Where Mordecai said to Esther, for who knows, maybe you are here for such a time as this. Maybe you are here for such a time as this. 
this verse, one that scholars pretty universally agree, it is the key verse, and it's here for instruction. For such a time as today. For now. Esther was not in her position except by God. And you too are not here by chance in this day. And you can believe the lies, but the Bible actually instructs us fully. We see it time and again, but I'm going to offer you just three verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Then so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words... Good, bad, you, all there together. You may not see it clearly. God is the author of it all. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God establishes the steps of your life, the parts of your life, the time of your arrival. What you look like, God planned it. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. It's not just you, but even the king, even the rulers. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Whether prince or pauper, your life is no chance. As I said, it's, your physical appearance is not by chance. Your present or your current circumstances is not a chance. Every moment, every moment is God's. God has literally arranged the space that you are in right now as you hear this message. And he's arranged for you to be in a culture like you are in today. For actually you to be something more than you might imagine yourself to be. You're born for such a time as this. God ordains purpose for you. And allows what you've already experienced. What you are experiencing in this moment. And what is coming your way. To actually be full of purpose. For his glory you're good. See, the purpose of your life, when informed by Scripture, it is unmistakable, even if you live your life missing it. And yes, you can live your life and miss the purpose that God has you here for. And this is what we see in Scripture. And if you're a follower of Christ, you belong to someone else. You belong to God, and God has purpose for you. But we find ourselves in strange times. I, I know that I may sound ancient in this, but frankly, I'm like, what kind of bizarre world am I living in right now? But we're not the first to think this way. But our generation, our generation, our generations before us also believe lies. Here's what kind of what it looks like right now. It's being proposed that life really has no purpose. This philosophy has been rooted not 
by the most recent modern thinkers or cultural elites. They'll pitch it like they do, but by a few philosophers that you may never have heard of. People like Rousseau, Nietzsche, and Marx. You may recognize the name, you don't know the content of their arguments. We are regarded as being bound and needing to be freed, or that you're nothing more than matter. And matter, as we are, is just here, evolved out of a primordial soup. And what eventually occurs in culture, any culture, is a direct result of cultural traps that's been laid by others. Power structures with power brokers have made all the rules, and we are but pawns of what we've inherited. What we need is a break from what's been. It's a call to dismantle all structures for different structures, a deconstructed reality where there's no truth, only moral relativity that we dream up for ourselves, and only you, you only can make what Oprah first coined as, quote, your truth, end quote. As if truth can be manipulated into whatever image you choose, whether it be that you're non-binary, directionless, you rework and reject all societal structures, you reject authority, anything that does not agree with what you want. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar to where you are, just hang on, we'll get to you. <laughs> if you're not on board, then we're considered the problem. You're subject to cancellation and being marginalized. And as the apostle put it in Romans chapter 1, we exist and we are not the first. We exist in an existence where Paul said unrighteousness suppresses truth. And we've become futile in thinking and foolish in our hearts as they have become darkened. It's Romans chapter 1. Verse 21, you can go look it up. Now, I'm not going to camp out here, but just for a moment. This is a glancing blow. This is not meant to harp against culture. It is to say that you are here in this moment. And you too may be tempted to think in ways that the culture at large thinks. You might be influenced by what I personally call Historical benefit amnesia. What do I mean by that? It means that you have benefited from decisions and sacrifices of other people. The problem with benefit amnesia is that we forget that we had little to do with many of the things that benefit us, including how difficulty and pain actually can benefit us, like hard work, experiencing rejection, and I'll even go as far to say, some of you have known abuse in your life. And I want you to know, you've been a victim of abuse, but God does not want you to live as a victim. The world that we find ourselves in today, we may be tempted to believe we just are here that nobody else had anything to do with what is. But this is not so. 
When you think that way, you think that the world owes you something. When frankly, the world owes you nothing. It was here before you got arrived. And you might want to undo it, but it doesn't make it so. It's no wonder that we find ourselves, even us as Christians, in a truly fragmented and fragile existence. Where we're not focusing on the most important things, but all these cursory things that offend us. Folks, I think even among the church, I think we have to be honest. We can easily lose our way. And as God's people, we've abandoned sometimes what God has called us to be. Planted right here for such a time as this. Do not pine for the old days. Know and understand God's got you right here for a reason. Just as he did Mordecai, just as he did Esther. Do not be falling to the temptation to be fearful and angry. And or looking to politics to solve all of our problems. But remember as I started that you had a purpose. So okay, Brian, you have a pur- I have a purpose. What is that? What is that purpose? I want you to see it in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. I will read this to you. Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You give glory to God by yielding yourself to the Spirit of God so that the light of Christ is seen by the world. God has good works for you. Ultimately, it is about you being a tool of his love and redemption to a broken and a confused and a fragile world. Even as they push against you. And I want you to know, that's not in a vacuum. That's not me jumping over the New Testament. That's back in Esther chapter 10. Look at Esther chapter 10. It's what we see in that last chapter. The cycle of life returns. The trial that impacted the people of God passes. Taxes are back. Everyone goes back to their homes. The festival is over. Life returns to regular rhythms. But there's some details at the end that we must take notice of. And we see it in the life of Mordecai. Look at his first, his standing at the end. He is second only to the king. Here it is again. God is actively putting down one and raising another. What must you see in this? What must we see in Mordecai that applies to us? First, this, look at how Mordecai in the text is regarded. Uses the word popular. Everybody loves to be popular. Right up until the decision that's not so popular that you have to make. Let me give you an illustration from from my life. Before I came to work here at Grace Fellowship... I worked for a large builder. If you don't know much about 
building life, there are local builders and there's national builders. And I worked for this builder and God was good to me many, many times. So much grace. It looked like almost everything that I touched that his favor simply was on. The company that I worked for promoted me to become the vice president of sales and marketing. This company had more than 400 employees, $300 million in sales annually. And like I said, I was well thought of right up until the place that I had to eliminate 100 jobs and pile work on other people. That corner office sounds great. Until you are literally in that corner office throwing up in a trash can because of all the conversations that you're going to have that day with people and say to them, your services are no longer needed. You want to hear something worse than that? I had to spend a day with someone that helped me walk through all of that only at the end of the day to turn to them and say, I'm sorry, you're done too. So if you're prone to envy popularity, don't. It's fleeting. But what I want you to see here is popularity is not about power, But it's about character in this case. And the character that we see in Mordecai is that which we should emulate. Look at it. Look at how he conducted himself. Look what the text says. He sought the welfare. I'm going to stop right there. Welfare, don't think about it in terms of a check. Think about it and what the word actually meant. It meant he thought in terms and conducted himself in ways that were good for the people. And he spoke peace to all of his people. Mordecai is remembered at the end by being a man with a mission. Good for people. He understood he existed for the betterment of others. Do you understand that your existence, by the grace of God, is marked to be good For other people. And as I've worked with couples in my office who loved each other dearly but have lost their way, one of the things that they lose their way with is understanding that they in their marriage exist for the good of their mate. He was a man of peace. Scripture tells us here he's spoken. This is the word shalom, which is not just the absence of war, but the presence and the giving of good, the giving of prosperity, the acts of graciousness. This is what characterized Mordecai. Remember chapter 4? This is the same guy that is wailing and lamenting in sackcloth and ashes. Our lives cannot be defined by one circumstance or the other. You're in a trial. You're coming out of a trial. You're about to head into a trial. 
Understand this. What you see in the life of Mordecai at the end is a man who has been shaped by the trial he's gone through. So I ask you, where do you fit in all of this? Where do the people of God fit? What should you do? Now, I know that in an audience like ours, the size of Grace Fellowship, regardless of the campus that you are sitting in today, there are those today who are are suffering. It might be your health. You have pain. You have a prognosis that you don't want. You just long to be physically well. You hurt. You're weak. And there's also people here who've made a mess of their life. It's not physical issues that you're struggling with, but relational and spiritual brokenness characterizes where you are right now. And when you look at and ask who is responsible, There may be others that contribute. The reality is the man in the mirror, you. It's laid at your feet. Does God have anything to say to you? Does God have anything to say to us when you are the maker of the mess? Yes, God has answers. God has renewal in mind for you. But how does that work? How does that happen? Number three, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that as you look at a book like Esther, you need to take away that God's providential power reverses and redeems the pain of your brokenness. That's what God does. His providential power reverses and redeems the pain of your brokenness. And that's the theme in Esther. God's at work. He's preserving and he's refining his people through a pagan king, a whole lot of drama a Jewish wife and her adoptive father. And today, even in this moment, God's providential hand is working. How does he work today? I want to offer you one word, Jesus. That's how he works. God works through Jesus in our lives. And some of you, your idea of what Jesus is like in the midst of your brokenness and pain, you can't see him for what, who he actually is. Matthew chapter 12, verse 20 gives us a description about Jesus and how he interacts with the broken. It says in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. See this word picture from Matthew addresses pain. It addresses loss. It addresses bewilderment. Brokenness in our lives can be deep. And it comes often from our own decisions. It comes from the messes that we make with our own hands, with our own words. But know this, like a reed that was used for writing in that day, Jesus simply does not crush it and pitch it aside. And that wick from a candle that's barely able to burn, that's longing for oxygen, that flame that is hurting and small, both of these Jesus cares for. He does not abandon his work in their lives. 
He will not abandon his work in yours. So we talk about the sovereignty of God. It's one of our big rocks. But providence, the description of God's hand, his providential hand places emphasis on the love of God orchestrating all things, ultimately turning things, redeeming them, redeeming them, and bringing good in your life out of them. But yes, some of your dreams are going to be lost. Everyone in this room will face heartache and heartbreak in relationship. And there's going to be loss and death. But God does want all of us to see, even in our inability to grasp all that he is doing, to understand that he's at work. And I want to point you to a place in the Gospel of John where this is most profoundly seen. John chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, flip over there. But if you don't, I want you to just hear, because I'm not going to read the whole chapter. In fact, I am just going to touch on what this is all about. Whenever you look at a book, like the book of John, uh, the Gospels, one of the things that we often don't do, even as Christians, is understand that there is a path in the book. Typically, it builds, 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 and it hits a crescendo, and then it recedes. Up, 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 down, down, down. John chapter 11 is that peak place in the gospel of John. Who Jesus is, what he is coming to do, is brought to the front. And again, I say, I'm not going to read the story, but here is the short version of the story. Mary and Martha, who have been key in this book, they are good friends of Jesus. And they have a brother named Lazarus. And Lazarus is ill. And Lazarus dies. Before he dies, they send word for Jesus to come and heal their brother. And do you know what Jesus does? Scripture says he did not go. He stayed, I think it's two days longer, before he even makes his way there. Why would a good God arrange to not go and heal? It was a simple request. We know you're able, come and do this great thing that only you can do. Well, Lazarus' health even Lazarus' death are not more important than what God wants us to understand about him. And just like you, that moment of loss for Mary and Martha will bring grief and pain. It will bring confusion and including that question that begs all of us in the midst of our trials. What in the world is God doing? What is happening? Why, why, why? God Where are you? And you might be like Martha, who said very clearly to Jesus, if you would have come, he would not have died. That's grief. But Jesus reversed the pain and loss for Mary, Martha, and gave back life to Lazarus. And I often wonder, you've heard it talked about before, but I honestly, this is one of those things, 
when I run, bump into Lazarus in heaven, I'm going to ask like, what was going on? Were you chatting somebody up and suddenly you hear that voice, that only voice that all of us are going to know that voice when it speaks or calls our name. In that moment, he heard, oh, you got to go back. Here's what you must see. Here is what I do not want you to miss. The giving of life back to Lazarus demonstrated that even death cannot hold what God is willing and able to do. He can reverse the most dire moment in your life. You do not fall into good fortune. No, Jesus comes and speaks life to death. Come alive. Come forth. Now, how does he do this? Well, as I said, this chapter has the crescendo. Jesus does this ultimately by placing himself in the path of what we all ultimately deserve, death. John 11 is the place where the gospel has been building. And what he's come to do is clearly defined. He is the resurrection and the life. This is what he says to Martha in John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus reverses lives. And he deepens the understanding of who he is in, in a story like this. But it would come at a cost. Do you know who it would come at a cost for? It would come at a cost for Jesus. What Jesus did in raising Lazarus, it set the course of what happens next. John eleven fifty three. After conversations occurring between the religious rulers, it says that peak place in the gospel. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. His act of healing, his act of resurrecting, his acts of reversing, it's because he placed himself in the path of death. See, this is the gospel. Jesus' life given to redeem you. The gospel reverses any dead in existence that you know. And that ditch-prone life that you tend to be tempted to live. And all the wreck and carnage that comes with it. And he speaks into it. He speaks to you. He calls you by name. He is not ashamed of you. He reaches. But make no mistake, new life in Christ involves believing that leads to changing. You say, well, wait, 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 wait. Brian, are you saying then that if I don't change, I'm not a Christian? I'm saying this. I want you to hear this. If the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in your life does not change you, you have every reason to question, do I know Jesus? I'm saying that his presence in you by the Holy Spirit cannot help but change you. And if you cannot see that, 
Please understand the gospel. He is calling to you in the midst of your world, your circumstances. And he says, for such a time as this, I have you. For such a time as this, I call you. For such a time as this, I gave my life for you. You can come to him empty-handed, confused, broken, whatever mess you have, and know that the God of Esther, the God in his, his providential, sovereign, and hidden hand, is at work bringing you to himself. If you've never trusted him, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, there is no better moment than right now. And right where you sit, you can do it. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for a book like Esther. Thank you for behind all that drama, behind all the messes, behind all the confusion, behind the wailing, behind all of that. Lord, help us to see the broken pieces that we have, the cycles of our life, the taxes, the the living, the mundane, all of that. But also to clearly understand, oh God, in this moment, You are calling us to yourself. Call the sinner to yourself. Draw the person who today, for the very first time, has a deep sense, the need to say, I am the sinner. I believe you are the resurrection and the life. Draw them to place trust in you to surrender their life. We pray for your good work to be known in our lives. And, oh, God, help us to live as light and life to others. In Jesus' name.